and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Elber Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends Giselle Donnelly. I'm also a senior fellow at AEI and Julia Zoja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities. On our podcast, we talk about the challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Jan Havramnik, Deputy Chief of Mission at the Czech Embassy in Washington, D.C., and a former Deputy Minister of Defense of the Czech Republic, responsible for defense policy and strategy. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. We don't normally have many diplomats on, partly because diplomats tend to be very guarded and very cautious and provide you with, you know, sanitized talking points. Yet we decided to go ahead with you because we know that you won't be doing that. And we already have a track record of being very frank and very outspoken, particularly on defense matters, on defense of, on, on matters of transatlantic cooperation and U.S. Czech relations. I would like to kick off this conversation with an emphasis on what's happening here in the United States and on how that informs the debate back in the Central Europe and in the in the Czech Republic. So so right now we are recording this on the 9th of January. We are still waiting for any news from from Capitol Hill about the shape of, of a possible aid package to Ukraine. Obviously you know better than anybody that uh, there is no substitute for U.S. assistance, especially when it comes to military matters, to Ukraine. And if the U.S. withholds its assistance in the months ahead, the situation on the battlefield can get really difficult for the Ukrainians. How is that reverberating in the Czech discussion? And how, how nervous are you and your colleagues, both in here in Washington and back home, about where things are headed on the U.S. aid to Ukraine front, so to speak? Thank you so much for inviting me to the Eastern Front. Indeed, as you said, I'm representing my embassy, but I'm also going to be speaking from a personal point of view in order to fulfill the task, Valley Board, that you presented to me, not to be too polished and to be open and frank. So to your question, of course, we're watching the situation here in Washington very closely and, and very very cautiously. And I'd say everybody's still very much hopeful and putting a lot of emphasis on the U.S. leadership because U.S. leadership, as you put it, Dalibor, is key in supporting Ukraine, in getting all the assistance needed. And frankly speaking, this is a joint effort by the Americans and Europeans. So we need leadership on both sides of the Atlantic. And if one side falters, then I'm a bit concerned about the other might start to unravel too. And so we're not there yet, luckily, hopefully, and we should not get there. So I'm very hopeful. And I know that America always does the right thing. So to be seen to be continued closely. Well, it, it does the right thing when it runs out of other options. I know what you're referring to, but actually looking at the situation, the war in Ukraine, we haven't been in that situation. Both the US and Europe have rallied enormously. We've shown a large amount of support to, to the Ukrainians, an unprecedented of level of unity among NATO allies. So luckily there has not been that kind of a Churchillian moment. If there was one, it was on President Zelensky's side and his, his determination and courage to fight and uh, defend from aggression. So if you are positive and confident about the United States, you know, we are on the Eastern Front, we want to find out where you're not, <laughs> where your fears lie. And so let's zoom in a little bit into the region. The Czech Republic and the government in Prague have been very staunchly on the NATO Western support for Ukraine side throughout this war, whether it's about Ukrainian 
Ukrainian refugees or military support to the extent that it's possible to Kyiv. But we have started to worry from the beginning, really, about this region. And we had a long time ago something really active in the region called Visegrad 4, which unraveled and unfolded in the context of the war and particularly Hungary stands. But Hungary, of course, remains the outsider. However, there are concerns that there will be more variations on Hungary in the region. We've seen the Polish election going well for now. But there have been issues in the Polish-Ukrainian relationship over the last few months, as we've seen at the General Assembly of the United Nations in the fall. And in Slovakia, too, next door, um, the situation is not as rosy as it used to be at the beginning of the war. So how concerned are you? You mentioned a bit earlier that if the United States is not following up on support, you're afraid that the Europeans might become more hesitant too, if you're looking at the region uh, surrounding the Czech Republic and, and of course the Czech Republic too, throughout 2024, how concerned are you that support for Ukraine next door, where it needs it most in sort of its Western neighborhood, is faltering? Well, you caught me in a very optimistic mode today. And this is also the, the moment where I do have to wear my diplomatic hat so I cannot comment on specific policies by our individual allies and partners. But I will say that when it comes to Poland, for instance, Poland is spearheading to counter Russia influence, to call Russia's behavior and policies what they are. So I'm not concerned about any alteration of a course. And yes, you know, every neighbor policy, every every bilateral relationship is complicated and Central Europe is no exception. In fact, it's a textbook of complicated history and individual relationships. But all of the NATO and EU members have supported the policy of unity. So of course we have different opinions, but I also have to say that we talk to one another. So what is sometimes not seen is there is a very intense consultation process going on between Poland and Czech Republic. Czech Republic, Hungary, Hungary uh, with others, Slovakia as well. And in fact, you, Julia, said that the Visegrad 4 unraveled. I differ with you a bit. I think it hasn't really caught up to the strategic challenge uh, that it was supposed to be catching up a long time ago, maybe a decade ago or so. But Visegrad is not entirely dead yet. Uh, and I have to say that as a country that holds the V4 presidency, it is challenging. But I think it's really a form where we talk behind the closed doors and we're being very honest. And I've seen more level of honesty than in this very format. So I think the countries of Central and Eastern Europe will continue to support Ukraine because the war is in our neighborhood and it is in our vital interest and it's in everybody's interest. And that includes Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, the frontline states to support Ukraine in this war. Okay, I'm going to try one last time to curb your enthusiasm, Jan, but I'm not going to come at it from an American point of view or a Central and Eastern Europe point of view, but from a Western Europe, old Europe, so to speak, channeling my inner Donald Rumsfeld. And particularly, it's hard to figure out the vibes coming out of Germany are sometimes better, sometimes worse, but frequently changeable. So without leading you to end your career just yet or to the brink of destruction, just give us your read on how the rest of Europe, Western Europe, is feeling particularly apropos of the difficulties on the battlefield, the problems of the Republican Party here in the United States, not to mention the prospect of Donald Trump 
presidency. Again, where do you think the heads of the Germans and other Western European publics might be these days? I think the downside of European politics is that we're sort of trying to be more than the administration itself, and there we're trying to lean in to American politics. And we've seen a level of panic among some European panels. Hey, we're panicked too. So it's a reasonable reaction to the situation. But at the end of the day, I mean, we all Europeans and we all very much partisan. We're not putting an X into one particular policy basket. Well, so I know that some countries are maybe prone to other administrations uh, because that they think that the administrations might be or those parties might be representing. But overall, look, I mean, whatever administration comes in, whether it's continuation of the current administration or a new Republican administration, they will have to deal with this war and they will have to deal with the reality on the battlefield. So one thing is to be anticipating something that might not even happen, but the other is to deal with the reality, which is going to be very harsh. We have not seen all the possible assistance that there could be coming to Ukraine, be it from the United States, be it from European countries. And I'm not only referring to military hardware, but also some practical security assistance and deeper cooperation. So that's what's in store for the next uh, couple of months. But of course, going to your earlier comment, the Europeans tend to get focused on one particular issue uh, when it comes to the transatlantic partnership, and then we are likely to get distracted. I hope we're going to emerge from, uh, again, I'm sounding maybe too optimistic, despite the rainy weather today here in D.C., but I hope from the NATO summit that is happening this summer, much stronger and which uh, with a better clarity what to do uh, moving on in the rest of 2024 and, and beyond. Again, I'm not going to be commenting on a potential administration that hasn't taken office yet, but we have some pretty good track record or it comes to European policy, both actually from the Biden administration as well as Trump administration, however not popular this uh, opinion might be some circles here in D.C. or in Europe. Jan has raised the question of this summer's NATO summit, which I think is kind of an interesting framework through which to view where we are right now. I think the three of us, Jan, were kind of anticipating that the 75th NATO summit would be somewhat of a triumph, not just because Ukraine's security situation would be improved, but it would be an obvious you know, opportunity to issue an invitation to the Ukrainians, etc., etc., be a big feather in President Biden's cap, the summit's going to be here, etc., etc., etc. Let me just put it this way. What do you think is the best but still likely outcome of this milestone that's really only six months off? Right. It's, it's almost literally around the corners. You know, anything that in the past two years should happen here in Washington. In fact, we need to, the least minimum is to say what Ukraine's path to NATO and cooperation with NATO will look like in the coming, not years or the next decade, but really in the coming months. Whether the summit or not will issue an invitation that will be a subject to the very last minute negotiations. Uh, and it all depends on various international discussions uh, taking part before the summit. So I wouldn't want to speculate on that. Would I, as a citizen, love to see uh, an invitation issued to Ukraine? Yes, absolutely, by all means. But as we all know, NATO also operates based on a consensus. And sometimes the unity will allow uh, sustained support to Ukraine could be much more important than a stronger language that cannot be fulfilled, which was the case of Bucharest. 2008, which hasn't really served us well, as it turned out, unfortunately. So definitely, I agree with you, Giselle, that we have to have a very strong outcome when it comes to cooperation with Ukraine. And in fact, since Vilnius, there have been an introduction of the NATO-Ukraine Council, 
which has really uh, been used to its effect quite recently. There was an emergency meeting in that format, etc. We're, we're getting there, and as NATO allies open up more to practical cooperation with Ukraine, I think that is going to be the bulk of the NATO-Ukraine package, if you will. Last year, around 4,000 Ukrainian soldiers on our territory, in addition to the military assistance provided and the humanitarian assistance provided, there are others who are hosting Ukrainian troops. And so I think that is a very important aspect of that partnership. So if I may, I'd like to make another attempt at getting you into trouble by asking you about domestic Czech matter. The current government and President Pavel, I think they've been all exemplary in, in expressing their support for Ukraine and acting you know, in a very practical ways to, to help Ukrainians, whether through military assistance, whether through hosting refugees and so on and so forth. I wonder though whether you might be worried at the level of public opinion and also at the elite level about the so-called Ukraine fatigue setting in, in in the Czech context. Specifically, you know, you look at opinion polls, you see Andrei Babish's party, you know, being on track to form the next government after 2025. Andrei Babish has never really gone quite as far as Orban or Fico in distancing himself from from Ukraine, but in the campaign for president, yeah, he was, you know, very explicitly positioning himself as the candidate of peace, as opposed to explicitly pro-Ukrainian platform of President Pavel. So, so are you worried a that that the Czech public opinion might go wobbly on Ukraine, and or that the next Babish government might, you know, take a position similar to that that we saw in, in, in that we've seen in Bratislava? And elsewhere. I'm not actually worried. Again, the optimistic day today, uh, but it's been almost two years uh, since the outbreak of the war, and the Czechs are still supporting Ukraine. And I, by that, I also mean individual Czechs. We haven't seen an increase of violence against Ukrainian refugees and expats. We have seen a continued assistance on the government side, and even the opposition and the reasonable opposition. They have not invoked the kind of a language that you, Dalibor, mentioned that emerged populist language during the presidential campaign. Of course, I mean. It is an easy subject for populists to grab, if they will, and wish to pursue that. But I hope that they will think twice and they will know better, because that language has not served really any of our countries in our neighborhood well in the past, and uh, we know what it led to a hundred years ago. And so we better think twice, but I think there is a very strong conviction among the society that we need to stand up for those who are being attacked. My country, our country, the Alibor, was attacked in the past. We were not always assisted by the others, and we know what it led to. So I think that's the conviction that the Czechs have been leading with the assistance to Ukraine. And I don't think that's that's going to change because everybody still remembers vividly the images of 1938, 1939, 1968. And this is part of the communication campaign that uh, our government has also employed in trying to explain to the Czech society the, uh, the assistance uh, to Ukraine and the needs to help Ukraine. But of course, foreign policy never wins the elections. So that's true in every country, including here in the United States. Uh, so government is facing a very enormous task, a challenging task, how to explain to constituency why why this matters. But again, I would argue that in addition to the sacrifice that the people of the Czech Republic had to undertake from economic benefits to the labor market and other. So luckily, I mean, there are no parliamentary government elections. There are 
are European, European Parliament elections, local municipal elections, but we'll see. I'm, again, trying to be a bit more optimistic looking at the outcome of the previous elections, that uh, populism will not prevail and people will still choose the voice of reason. So building up on this upbeat mood, I wanted to give you an opportunity to brag a little and also to put on your hat of a defense policy expert. So, so the Czech Republic has been making really meaningful strides towards rebuilding of its armed forces, the F-35 decision. Uh, now Prague is also teaming up with Berlin to procure 77 of the most recent Leopard tanks from Germany. Are you happy with how things are moving in terms of investing into, into Czech military capabilities? What are the biggest gaps that still need to be filled and what's your sort of view of, of, you know, the Jack military in 2024. And if I can add to that a little bit of pessimism, because we have to be ready for that too. Basically, my added question would be, do you think that the Czech Republic is ready for the war to spread? We've seen Poland in a major arming campaign since the beginning of the war. A few days ago, Romania, my country, bought 200 additional Patriot systems. And so they're trying to catch up with Poland, though half the size. And Dalibor just mentioned a few initiatives within the Czech Republic and beyond. So as we're looking into 2024 and 2025, beyond Ukraine, in terms of getting ready, getting the front line ready to increase deterrence, to avoid the war from spreading, where do you assess? the Czech Republic in this process? Well, catching up is a good good word because many of the government decisions, and I'm happy for them, and I helped to coin some of them when I was still in Prague a year and a half ago, but many of those should have been taken many, many years ago. In fact, about 12, 13 years ago, government paper called the White Paper on Defense uh, pointed at all those gaps and discrepancies, and it really took a uh, maybe three or four budget cycles, during which uh, our defense spending, like many other countries' spending, hit the bottom to bring it up to current level and has really to wake up to this new security reality. I know that China is the big challenge here and everybody's attention here in Washington, D.C. is focusing on China and we respect that. And in fact, my country is one of the very few European countries who are open cognitive to uh, security challenges coming from China. But Russia's immediate threat is very much present uh, not only on the frontline states, but, but in Europe. So the modernization will have to continue. Government, as you mentioned, Alibor, has recently procured uh, or decided to procure F-35 aircraft. We procured the infantry fighting vehicles, developing the cooperation on our tank ammunition, and uh, most importantly, also personnel. We're facing some serious generational gaps in recruiting, and so we need to step it up but from a very binary, if you will, approach to defense and sectoral departmental defense to a holistic whole-of-government approach. And this has been an enormous effort that has really taken perhaps too many years, but I think all the policies are in place and hopefully some of the longer term decisions will be harder to dismantle because uh, there is a shared consensus on some of those decisions. On others, there isn't, but that's always subject to politics. But at the end of the day, we're members of NATO, we're members of the European Union, and our defense is now very much in line, as our recent defense strategy says, with uh, NATO's adaptation and NATO's strategic posture, uh, posture in Europe. And that will require more forces, more capabilities in the, not the long term, in really the short to medium term. I wonder if I could just do a follow-up defense geek 
question about not just the matter of European capacity, but changing technologies and capabilities. Of course, the Ukraine war is, like all wars, you know, unique and defined by the particulars of locale and forces. But in particularly in Ukraine's case, the limits to what Western and American arms transfers have been. So we've seen a bunch of trends, and I don't know what to make of them. So I'm going to ask you sort of to imagine a consensus or, you know, tell us what the European conversation is like when it comes to things like unmanned aerial systems, counter unmanned systems. Uh, Yulia mentioned the uh, drive to get more patriots there, but you know the cost of a patriot is many times the cost of a Shahid or any of the other targets that patriots can be used against. So uh, again, do you have a sense of what the European defense technology experts are deriving from the Ukraine situation and how they see not merely the need to rebuild capacity, but to get some new capabilities beyond just building new versions of Leopards or buying F-35s or what have you? I think this is perhaps the first all-domain war. So looking back over the past 30 years at, at the various conflicts, there always was a predominant capability that everybody thought, oh, this is the way we should be going. And in reality, in Ukraine, unfortunately, this all has come together. So Yes, there's a lot of investment to be done in terms of new technologies, AI, cyber, etc. But that doesn't take away the need to have the core of defense, which is the traditional hardware quantity and quality. And in fact, this is where the new technologies can very much plug in into the what you would call a traditional capability, traditional type of warfare. So I think it's really the takeaway. It's the sophistication of war. And, you know, all of our adversaries are watching and they're watching at all sides of the conflict. So we all know that the next conflict will never be the same as the current one. But the drones, for instance, have emerged as a very sometimes unsophisticated uh, capability uh, of the future. But again, it's nothing new. We've been uh, talking about the integration of drones into our posture for the past at least 10, 15 years. So that's something that our new concept of the development of armed forces is trying to integrate, put it sort of all together. The most difficult part is to, to prioritize. And you will always have people who will argue for more technology investment at the cost of a more expensive, bulky one. But then at the end of the day, there are also some NATO requirements and it's always about the negotiation. So while as the Czech Republic might not be immediately procuring Patriot missiles, that doesn't take away the requirement for substantial air defense capabilities and, and projection of power from our side. So we need to figure out a way how to get there. And again, I don't want to sound as a warmonger, but unfortunately there there is no peace around us and this will really require a much more substantial investment in, in defense. In fact, this is the first year that the Czech Republic since early 2000s is going to be spending 2% of GDP on its defense. And while this has been an unprecedented number in the past 20 years or so, it all also seems that it may not be enough uh, simply but given the overall economic situation and the financial situation in the Czech Republic, people might get feeling that the government is already spending too much on defense. We're not a frontline state. You know, there is no immediate danger. But history has proven us wrong, you know, that this is a wrong, uh, wrong attitude. So it's going to be costly. Even peace is now very costly. So when it comes to defense, I, I, I want to quote here retired 
General Breedlove. He was asked a couple of months ago about what Romania as a frontline state should be shopping more for or designing its defense. And I think that applies to all the countries in Central and Eastern Europe and, and Germany too. And the example with Patriots is, I think, a good one that we need to also be thinking about offensive weapons exactly for deterrence. We've been focusing a lot across the flank on defensive. Patriots is a great example, counter cyber, counter drones, etc. But I think for successful deterrence against a power such as Russia, this is also something that we need to put more efforts in across the region in the months and, and years to come. Before we let you go, we haven't really talked about Russia. And the first thing that I want to say, mention here, also a bit of a compliment, is the Czech Ministry of Foreign Affairs's responses to Russian verbal aggressions are my favorite. Strategic communication from Prague is always amazing. The listeners, if they haven't looked into it, there's been a few exchanges. I definitely recommend them on Twitter or X now. It's very straightforward how the Czech Ministry of Foreign Affairs replies to Russian accusations and, and verbal harassment. And it should be given as an example of our strategic communication across Europe and beyond. But Jan, I want to ask you, When you think about Russia in 2024, what keeps you awake at night? What are you fearing most? Is it the soft side of Russian power, strategic communication, and how they have been very successfully, to some extent at least, trying to undermine support for Ukraine within the West, undermine our own solidarity? Or is it the hard power, the Russian military might that seems to the British and American intelligence have been predicting the Russians running out of missiles last year, and yet they are bombing Ukraine front and end um, every other night. So when you're looking at Russian warfare across the spectrum in the months to come, what are you most afraid of? What do you think that we and, and of course our audience should be focusing on in the months to come? My biggest concern is going back to complacency or misreading Russia. Russia, like we've misread Russia many, many times, and I'm not referring to the Czech Republic, quite the contrary, but some other Western European allies were just caught by surprise. And many of us in Central and Eastern Europe in February 2022, we found ourselves in this we told you so moment, which was, it wasn't a satisfaction. It wasn't any kind of satisfactory vindication, unfortunately. And my concern is that we might relapse into the same mode for the sake of a quick win and quick peace. Some might be tempted to make a deal with taters. So that's my concern, number one. Concern number two is indeed, Yulia, as you, as you mentioned, Russia has been able to recuperate and restart its economy and, and war machine also thanks to help of other countries who have been bypassing or not subscribing to the sanctions at all. So that's something to be mindful of. So I would expect uh, the West to really double down on making sure that Russia's case in terms of sanctions and is unable to, to deliver these capabilities. But some of uh, Russia's partnership are just very, very concerning, to name a few with uh, the cooperation with Iran or Korea, and not to mention the Russian-Chinese uh, alliance that it has been so often demonstrated in the public and that seems not to be waning at all. So these are indeed things that are on my mind, but on the mind of many other European colleagues here in Washington, D.C. So I guess that would be my also message to the audience. Uh, think about these issues in 2024 as you expect your leadership to take some decisions. I think that's a very sort of reasonable note on which to wrap up. And 
you know, when I think about the so-called Ukraine fatigue, I, I think that's the right way of framing it. I mean, the longer this war goes on and the more it's sort of seen as inconclusive by political leaders and publics, the sort of harder it is to sustain the sort of momentum behind helping Ukrainians win. And we already see that, you know, work out here and, and in Europe. And it is the foremost task of this podcast to keep the sense of urgency alive. Thank you for doing that. I think if there's someone who has the right to fatigue of war, it's the Ukrainians themselves, not us. The least we can do is really to uh, mobilize all of our resources to make sure we, we support the Ukrainians in their fight. Yeah, thank you. And that is that is a very true observation from me, Dalva Rohaj. And me, Giselle Donnelly and Julia Zosa. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on the platform formerly known as Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod, written as one word. And don't forget to sign up for the Eastern Front's newsletter through the link included in the show notes to receive more content from the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating and reviewing us. Thank you and goodbye.